previously on The Florida Files. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Come look at my eyes. Soon as you get a chance, you look in my eyes, you'll see every color in fire there is. Did you hear him talk about bring me the ear of a white devil? Um, indirectly, yes. Yahweh Ben Yahweh uses, he uses, he used coded words. The victims, 37-year-old Rudolph Broussard and Anthony Brown, apparently argued with Yahweh members just hours before they were found shot several times in the head and back. I had somebody tell me Rozier was just a psychopath and he was just doing it all on his own. Well, you know, the, the, uh, first I think it's stupid, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, the guys put together a pretty good investigation. We knew where it was coming from. We knew you and Mitchell were the homicides. So there's no doubt in our minds at all. The beginnings of Miami's Temple of Love and Yahweh Ben Yahweh formed 20 years before Hulon Mitchell Jr. creates his Nation of Yahweh in Miami. It is the early 1960s and Mitchell discovers the Nation of Islam, the Black Muslim Movement, which emphasizes the role of Islam as the true religion of the black community and its role in fighting white supremacy in the United States. Never before this time did anyone come for the salvation of the so-called Negroes in America whose rights have been ignored by their enemies, the white race, for 400 years. He is mesmerized by Elijah Muhammad, then leader of the Nation of Islam, who becomes a mentor to outspoken activist Malcolm X, Nation of Islam's Louis Farrakhan, and to Hulon Mitchell Jr. Our first step is to give back to the white man his religion, Christianity his church, and his names. These three are chains of slavery that hold us in bondage to them. Muhammad finds Mitchell charismatic. He urges Hulan to drop his surname, his slave name, and call himself only Hulan X. X, Muhammad says, signifies that the black man had lost his identity in slavery and did not know his true name. Yahweh Ben Yahweh would adopt this same idea for his followers when he eventually founds his Temple of Love. In 1964, the same time that Hulon X is steeped in learning about the Black Muslim movement, a boxing champ named Cassius Clay makes headlines when he joins the Nation of Islam. He tells the news media, praising his leader and teacher, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, for giving him a new name. How do you want to be called now, Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay? Muhammad Ali. It is the Nation of Islam's beliefs that resonate with Hulan X, that God is one, and it is time for blacks to return to the religion of their ancestors, Islam, and that the black man of America is God across planet Earth. This was the first time I heard we were God, Yahweh is quoted as saying. Growing up in the shadows of his Pentecostal minister father, this is a message that Hulon Mitchell Jr. can make his own. Elijah Muhammad gives Hulon X his own mosque to minister. It's in Atlanta, Georgia, mosque number 15. He becomes His Holiness Hulan Shah. 
His biological daughter, the second oldest of his four children, Vanita Mitchell, says her father was so proud of becoming one of the top-ranking ministers in the Nation of Islam. But Mitchell says an incident in the family home just a few miles away from Mosque Number 15 would be a turning point, and Hulan Shah would distance himself from the Nation of Islam. After joining the Muslims, he was there with them for, I guess, several years. And so he made a choice to leave the Nation of Islam uh, after meeting with uh, Elijah Muhammad and uh, after um, our lives were placed in danger uh, while he was uh, within the nation. Uh, he chose to uh, make a move and, and leave the nation. How did it end up that you felt like your lives were in danger? Someone had put out a hit on uh, my dad, and we found out later that it was uh, one of the captains, uh, ranking high captains. Uh, his name would have been Mr. Lawson, if he's still living, who had placed a hit on my father. And in doing so, they sought to come after his children. And I guess he wanted his position. He wanted to be one of the high-ranking ministers within the nation. And so um, in doing so, he came after us. Local 10 and Local10.com present the Florida Files, I'm Michelle Solomon, and this is Yahweh Ben Yahweh's Temple of Love, Cult or Conspiracy? It's 1967. Minister Shah is preaching at his mosque number 15. The family home is less than a quarter of a mile away from the temple on Bankhead Highway in Atlanta, Georgia. Vanita and her three other siblings are home alone. We were um, held hostage. And on this particular night that the uh, individuals who have been paid to kill us. So my two sisters, uh, Livia and Nardea, and my brother, Maccabee, we were all in the family room watching television and we heard this noise. I went into the bedroom and um, I would turn the lights on and when I would turn the lights on, the noise would stop. When I turned the lights off, the noise would start up. So I went to my older sister and I told her, I said, I think somebody's um, trying to get in our bedroom through our bedroom window. And so she told me, she said, well, go get the bat. You know, she said, it might be dad just playing games, but just in case it's not, go get the bat. So little brave me, uh, Benita Mitchell, went back into the bedroom by myself and grabbed the bat and went back to the den. And they said, um, your dad uh, sent us to watch you. And my older sister said, my dad would never send you guys to watch us. And when she said that, the tall guy um, pulled out a gun with a silencer on it. And my sister, we all stood like little Davids. We stood up, 
We didn't scream at the time or holler, but she took the bat that she had in her hand and she hit the the man who had the gun holding the, the gun with the silence on it, knocking the gun out of his hand. And when she knocked that gun from that man's hand, I took off running. So I ran on into the mosque area where the classes were being taught by Yahweh bin Yahweh, who was known as Minister Shaw at the time. And there were guards standing around the podium and the place was packed. And I screamed out to him, daddy, daddy, they're trying to kill us. They're trying to kill us. And when I, he could see in my little face because I couldn't have been no more than about, oh, I'd say eight years old. And he could see in my face that this was no joke, this was real. And so he was the first to jump off the podium. And he led as the other brothers uh, security ran behind him and everybody was running as fast as they could to get to the house. That time, the shorter guy who had chased me with the knife um, warned him, man, we gotta go, uh, they're coming. Uh, I wasn't able to catch her. He's speaking about me. And so they left uh, fleeing down a hill. So after that, Yahweh bin Yahweh made up in his mind it was time to leave the nation of Islam because he was not going to uh, put his family's life in danger. And if it was about someone trying to uh, get that post, he said he could have that. But he chose to move on. And it was from there that our whole lives changed for the better. Um, Yahweh bin Yahweh, became more of an entrepreneur and developed his entrepreneurship. He um, opened up two bakeries, uh, a men's clothing store that we own, and two, um, a childcare facility where we housed about 250. We were able to take up to 250 kids uh, with the daycare. After starting up the businesses here in Atlanta, Yahweh Yahweh became a multimillionaire. So he was already a millionaire before uh, moving to Miami and becoming the founder of the nation of Yahweh. We have moved from poverty to riches. I mean, as few people in the earth will give up their riches, which I had before I came. I gave it all away. I gave it every bit away. Can document that I had it. And I gave it away. Then I came here with nothing. And look what I built here. And, and you need to see what I built across the country. In seven years, I built over $50 million. It is 1986 when Yahweh gives this speech, the same year as the Delray Beach firebombings, the same year of the close-range shootings at the Opalaka apartments where Rudy Roussard and Anthony Brown are murdered, the same year Robert Rozier is found hiding in bushes near the apartment shortly after the shootings when a police canine sniffs him out. Police ask him his name. He says, Neariah Israel, child of God. When they ask his age, he says he's 404 years old. Robert Rozier is 33 at the time. 
When they ask about his background, he says he can't remember. He can't remember his life before he was Neariah. More questions from the cops. Neariah says after each, praise Yahweh. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the mid-1980s in Miami, the heyday of the cocaine cowboy. So, shortly after the pre-dawn shooting, Opelaka Mayor John Riley says it's unclear whether the Yahwehs are responsible or if it's just another shootout over drugs. But only a day after that Opelaka incident, October 31, 1986, Rozier is charged with murder and he's put in jail. After eight months behind bars, Robert Rozier wants to talk to Yahweh. He calls the temple, but an assistant says Yahweh doesn't want to speak to him. It's June 9, 1987. Hours later, at a televised public press conference, Yahweh discredits Rozier and calls him publicly a black devil. Robert Rozier has now proven that he is among the many black devils that have come among us pretending to believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of the righteous, and then sought to destroy the work of Yahweh and his moral teachings, which is the solution to all of the world's problems. There is no connection whatsoever between the alleged crimes committed by Robert Rozier and the Temple of Love or myself. We do not advocate murder, we do not advocate violence, and we know nothing of his activities at Opalaka or anywhere else. Vanita Mitchell says her father couldn't have been involved, that he didn't believe in violence, and had always promised that anyone who acted against the will of Yahweh would be banished. She says this is why her father sought to distance himself from Robert Rozier. Yahweh never gave them orders to go shoot anyone. In fact, if you ever listen to any of his videos, in his videos, he spoke against guns. He said, we don't need guns to win this war. It's a spiritual war. And so a person doesn't need guns. In fact, he, he spoke against uh, us carrying guns. And so, you know, he was one that, um, you know, he, he never gave those orders. That was all a lie. That was all um, made up. In an interview with Miami Beach AM radio station WMBM, host Ira Everett asked Yahweh Ben Yahweh about guns, and he asked him specifically about the incident at Opalaka. I don't need a gun to accomplish my purpose. This is what will uh, enforce the reality that Yahweh is sovereign, that he has all power over man. Uh, men have been trying to solve their problems for 6,000 years with weapons, uh -huh. and there's no peace on the earth. It, now men who believing weapons formed by the hands of men could solve their problems have brought the earth to the brink of total destruction. Now, since I don't carry weapons, my father forbids me to. Uh -huh. I in turn forbid my disciples to carry any weapons. No one carrying in this room? No one in this room is carrying any. No one that follows me that's a disciple of mine will ever pick up a gun. If anyone does who claims to follow me, they're just a liar and antithetical to what I do and okay, teach. Okay, let me ask you, all right, it's a natural question. Uh, when 
you took over the apartments in Opelika. Your organization took over the apartments. Uh, Mr. Rogier uh, was involved in a shooting. Uh, did you disavow any knowledge of him representing the church or the organization, or did he do that as an individual, and he was removed from the body of Yahweh? The latter. Uh, he acknowledged, according to the papers and television, having done this himself, which made it an individual act. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are hundreds of millions of us who believe in Yahweh all across the world. Mm -hmm. We couldn't possibly be responsible for the act of any individual who claims to believe in Yahweh. Former Miami Beach Police Department homicide investigator Danny Borrego, who worked the case, believes that Rozier's banishment and Yahweh's public show is when the dominoes begin to fall. Then we had another break, which was when Yahweh ben Yahweh um, excommunicated uh, Robert Rozier from the Yahwehs. Uh, initially, he hired an attorney for him. He hired Ellis Rubin uh, to represent him. And shortly thereafter, Ellis Rubin was off the case, and Robert Rozier realized that Yahweh ben Yahweh was not going to defend him any longer, so he said, okay, you're not going to defend me, I'm going to cooperate. Once he realized that the Yahweh's were not going to finance his defense, he said, I'm going, to co I'm going to cooperate. And I think that was the impetus for him to finally come forward. So he agreed to cooperate, and um, we began debriefing R Robert Rozier. Rozier begins to talk and talk. He goes into detail about several 1986 murders that all have the same M.O., but are unsolved. He admitted to all of these uh, murder cases, and the, the reason he was doing this is basically on orders of Yahweh ben Yahweh, that he would ask them to go out and kill white devils, and they needed to come back with proof that they had killed people, so the proof was for the ears. So he provided, you know, detailed admissions of all of these, uh, all of these cases and all of these other things that they had done. And he was part of his angels of death, as he used to call them, or circle of death, uh, which were his closest advisors and closest uh, members uh, that he trusted to go out and do these things. So, so Rozier admitted to, 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 to these cases, and um, the rest is history. <laughs> the question about Rozier, and if you look on the other side, the, the people that are on another side of it say he was cooperating because he would get less time? Obviously. Uh, he was probably trying to avoid a death penalty. Uh, I mean, time-wise, I think he was looking at life imprisonment. Uh, I don't think he was looking for anything more than that, other than not being executed. Um, you know, I mean, he was a murderer. Uh, so uh, I think that was what he was trying to avoid. I have heard a theory that maybe he was just acting on his own and wanted to set up Yahweh. Never, that never came out that I know of. No, I mean, uh, so everything really pointed to. Yeah, there, there was a reason why he was taking the ears. I mean, anybody can, you know, just kill somebody, but the actual ritual act of coming back with an ear, and there was obviously more to this. And he was not alone. I mean, he was, uh, you know, there was other people that were involved with him. So. And you found those people too. We charged them. Some of them we did. Yes. The nineteen eighty six victims. Glendale G. Fowler, 52, and Kurt Durer, 44, found stabbed to death in bed in a Coconut Grove apartment on April 19, 1986. Claire Walters, 
May 22, 1986, his throat slashed and left ear cut off. A male prostitute finds the body of James Lee Myers on July 21, 1986. He's stabbed to death, his right ear cut, but not completely severed. Lyle Austin Bellinger is found by a fisherman in a field in Miami on September 5, 1986. And on that same date, Raymond Kelly is discovered stabbed to death behind the TP lounge and one of his ears gone, the other found underneath the car. Rozier confesses to this murder. There's Harry Byer, 68, stabbed and killed on October 1, 1986, his left ear missing. October 10, 1986, Rinaldo Echeverria, stabbed to death. So it was. So at that point, it was. It was pretty much cut and dry. I mean, that was. Yeah. Once. Once. Uh, I mean, Rosier. Like I said, the, the 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 telling points were when we made that connection with with the uh, the gun, uh, and then you know when he decided to flip, as we call it, you know when he decided to cooperate, when Rosier decided to cooperate, um, and that led to you know everything else. The Miami attorney who defended Yahweh Ben Yahweh on first-degree murder charges in Dade County Circuit Court in 1992, Jane Weintraub, has a different take on Rozier's flip. He was very aware of, of image, and he wanted the image um, of the Yahwehs to be what it was, spiritual. The, the indictments were crazy. They were horrific. And they were based on people that betrayed him, which in some ways financially, and jealous of others that just wanted to bring him down and made things up. Like Robert Rosier, who I think was really crazy. The things that Robert Rosier testified about were not true. The jury knew they were not true. Such as what? Um, he, one of, after coming back from one of the murders, Robert Rozier, in detail, um, gave crazy detail of what people were wearing, what Yahweh said, where he was. We were able to prove with other people and with independent witnesses that half the things that Robert Rozier claimed happened when he came back from that murder didn't take place at all. And the one thing that was true was that Yahweh kicked him out of the temple. As soon as he found out and saw that there was blood on Robert Rozier's shirt even, he said, get out. You know, he banished him. And Robert Rozier subsequently said, Yahweh ben Yahweh told me to do it. Investigators say there was only one actual killing inside the Temple of Love the murder of karate champ Leonard Dupree in 1983, whose body is, to this day, never found. In 1983, when he finally sent me away to become an elder in Newark, New Jersey, I got a call one night first from my wife at the time. She told me in no uncertain terms that some karate guy had come to the temple and they had killed him in the temple. And the reason she was so affected by it because this karate guy had tried to stab her cousin, her first cousin. She had a first cousin that was there. So, and so Ak Moshe came and got some of the brothers and they round, 
they got they surrounded the guy and Akmoshe supposedly asked the guy are you here to hurt me or kill me and the guy says I'm here to worship you and he says I hear your Akmoshe asked the guys says I hear that you're a karate expert do you want to fight my karate expert which we had a guy that was into kung fu and that kind of thing and so they they faced off and this guy this karate expert knocked out Yahweh Ben Yahweh's karate expert with one punch just wham knocked him out and once he did that the rest of the brothers just swarmed him and they killed him right there in the temple um, it was said that someone took a tire jack and stuck it in his eyes Yahweh Ben Yahweh made everybody including his own biological sister who was there hit the body he wanted to he wanted to make sure that everybody had a hand in the murder so that if anybody went and told, they'd all be complicit in the murder of this guy. Khalil says that soon after he had finished speaking to his wife on the telephone, he gets another call. Well, it just so happens that the same night, I get a call from Akmoshe himself. And he begins to tell me, of course, I don't tell him that my wife told me, because that would be, first thing is, we're not even supposed to be talking, because Yahweh Ben Yahweh had a, he had a policy, he didn't even want his elders wives calling him long distance and bothering him. So this night, my wife calls and tells me about the murder. And then Yahweh Akmoshe calls me the same night. And I act all surprised because I don't want him to know that I've been talking to my wife. And he tells me the same story in coded language. He says something like, Yahweh Ben Yahweh gave us a goat tonight, today. I said, what? And he knows I understand the language. Yep. I told you all Yahweh Ben Yahweh would give us a scapegoat. And he gave us a scapegoat, and he would say a few things. He said enough to let me know exactly what he meant, that someone had come in the temple and had gotten murdered, which I already had the story from my wife. When Khalil returns from his Newark assignment, he finds out he's no longer in the main building, living under the same roof with his wife and children and where Yahweh ben Yahweh is. He's sent to a building blocks away. He's beginning to lose faith in the man he was once mesmerized by. He's rethinking the times he was standing guard inside the temple and sees Yahweh ben Yahweh leaving the rooms of married women and younger women in the middle of the night. I mean, there were times where I would be on guard duty between like 81 and 84. I'd be on guard duty and I'd walk throughout the temple at 2 o'clock in the morning and I would see Yahweh ben Yahweh coming out of a single or a married sister's bedroom with a a bathroom on. There were a lot of single teenage sisters that there were occasions I would see him come out of a single teenage sister's bedroom at two or three in the morning. And at that time, I thought nothing about it. I thought it was, you know, he'd he'd have a bathrobe on and I would think that he was just giving him some candlelight knowledge, so to speak. Yahweh Ben Yahweh instituted what they call brother's class and sister's class. Basically, he was trying to teach brothers how to become men and sisters how to become women from what he wanted. And so in brother's class, we were taught that leave the women alone sexually. If you weren't trying to make a baby, then there's no re- no need to be touching her. But yet, yes. but yet you told me that you believed he wasn't he wasn't keeping the same abstinence. Well, when I was in when I was in the cult, I wasn't even thinking that he was having sex. Most of that commentary has to do with after looking back, hindsight after I left.
He says much of it still haunts him, as if it happened yesterday. The howls of men after submitting to Yahweh ben Yahweh's insistence that all male followers who lived under his roof be circumcised. Yahweh insisting on a $100 donation to get the surgery. You know, the Bible talks about the men of Israel having to be circumcised on the eighth day, that kind of thing. And so Yahweh ben Yahweh decided one day he was going to have what they call a DI inspection or a DI. That's DI for dick inspection. So sure enough, one day he has all the guys in the brothers class stand up and drop our trousers and underwear. And he, he walks down the rows and looks at every guy's dick and he tells penis and he says, you know, he makes, I don't, I don't remember if he made mental notes or actually had paper. But he told you, okay, you're not, in, you know, you need to be circumcised. And so everybody who had to be circumcised, he told them it'd be a hundred dollars and he would circumcise you. Now, after that, and it wasn't forced. You you did it if you wanted to. He, he preached and taught that you have to be circumcised to be a part of the kingdom. Well, there was many guys that lined up that paid their hundred dollars. And I was part of the circumcision team. Not that I did anything, but. I basically stood behind, the guys would stand up, the guys would stand up, he had a he had a circumcision thing that he put on a clamp and he would cut it. And uh, that was it, that was that. And of course the result of it, you had a lot of guys that, you know, there was no, they, we weren't doing it in, a, in an antiseptic type way, you know, a sterile processing way like you do in the hospital. It was done right there in the temple. And, uh, you know, I understand that a lot of guys got infections behind it. There's a lot of screaming, a lot of burning, a lot of craziness going on. I was just glad that I was circumcised. It's time, Amani says, for him to escape the Temple of Terror. He doesn't want to leave his wife and children behind, but his wife has already told him she isn't going to leave. I would loved, I would have loved to have her leave with me, her and my children. But by the time I left, Yahweh Ben Yahweh had basically taken her away from me. She would end up staying in the cult with the children for another five years after Khalil leaves his family and his Yahweh name, Yehuda Israel, behind. Well, by the time, you know, I'm going to say 1984 is when I started having inklings that I knew that I was in a world of trouble being in this religion. And I, you know, I kind of knew that this was a cult by now, but it's still, you know, as, as a cult member, it takes a, it takes some stress, special strength to finally break away. And so for that last 84, I kind of wandered around aimlessly. And by 1985, I was just trying to figure out how to get out. He says it wasn't that he was forced to stay, but that his own devotion and subsequent brainwashing made it difficult for him. Rick Allen Ross, an expert on cults and the founder of the Cult Education Institute, wrote the book Cults Inside Out, How People Get In and Can Get Out. He talks about Yahweh ben Yahweh in the book and about the Temple of Love. He has no doubt that Yahweh ben Yahweh is a cult leader. What happens in cults that people feel like they can't escape them? 
Well, that's one of the hallmarks of a destructive cult is that there's no legitimate reason to leave. And anyone who leaves is wrong. And those that they leave behind who, who don't want to go with them or, or are so captivated by the group psychologically and emotionally that they feel they cannot leave, uh, they will shun a family member who does leave. So many times that anchors people indefinitely in these groups because they feel, I can't leave, there's no legitimate reason to leave, and if I do leave, I'm going to lose my family. So it's a struggle uh, to, to you know come to resolution and walk out. And, of course, if you've been in a group for many years and that's your entire life, it can be economically difficult as well. Uh, the people that were in the Yahweh Ben Yahweh group uh, were invested uh, in the group's businesses, in its properties. Uh, it was a way of life for them. And leaving the group was a very radical and difficult thing to do. The final straw, Monty says, is when he was punished for not bringing back enough money for required collections. We went out and passed literature throughout the black community. And so every night we would go basically to the same community. So we we had like so saturated the community with literature and the, the point was we had to give away literature and we had to come back with at least a minimum $10 quota. And if you didn't come back with your minimum quota, you were sent to this place called the Room of Understanding, which was basically our cafeteria converted into a dungeon of sorts. <laughs> and so um, this particular night, I went out and I didn't come back with $10. And you kneel down on your knees and your punishment, you didn't know how long you were gonna be in there. You just go in and they'll tell you, based on the severity of your punishment, that's how long you stayed in there. And so, for not making your quota, who knows what the, I didn't know what it was. But anyway, I'm in there on my knees and they had these guards, they had these big sticks. And if you bent down or fell off your knees or, you know, they would swat you with the stick and make you get back on your knees. Once I was allowed to leave the room, I knew that I was going to leave the cult immediately. And so probably two or three hours later, they said, Yehuda, get up and go, you can go. For me, it was it was a it was a it was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was my it was my epiphany. Went and found my wife, and I told her that I am leaving, and I and I, I didn't ask her to come because I knew she wasn't coming. But I just said I'm leaving, and I kissed my kids goodbye that night. I began to walk, act like I'm walking toward the warehouse. Now it's night. It's night. It's probably like ten o'clock. It's dark, and I began to walk like I was going to the warehouse where I was living. And I hit a side street. I made a quick right on a side street. And when I hit that side street, I just took off running with as fast as I could run. Mind you, I had on a turban and I had on a long robe and some white pants under it. And I just kind of snatched the turban off my head, snatched the robe off my body as I'm running. I don't know how I did it, but I was able to keep running at the same time, undressing until I was until I was just in a white t-shirt and some white pants and and I ran to a bus stop, bus came, I jumped on the bus and I went to the back of the bus and I sat there, um, you know, and I basically cried, put my head in my hands and and cried all the way to Carroll City, just, just a flood of emotions. 
I knew that it was done. I was done. You know, I was sad about my wife, my kids, but I had to, you know, I had to do what I had to do for myself. When did you decide to, you ended up deciding that you should tell the police this story? So after I left, after I left the Yahweh cult in 85, and basically after that, I just wanted to live my life and forget the nightmare. And then I began hearing things like the Opalaka thing where they bought the apartments and kicked all the people out in a day's notice. And that next night they end up, Two people end up dead. I knew that was Yahweh. Just that's the that's the mo. Um, I heard about the Delray Beach bombing, how they firebombed the neighborhood. I knew that this was Yahweh. I knew there came a day where I just said, "Enough is enough." Somebody has to inform. Someone has to speak up. Robert Rozier, Khalil Amani. They talk to the FBI. There are other witnesses, but some aren't as fearless. They are afraid of Yahweh ben Yahweh and what witnesses describe as his death angels. They are fearful for what might happen to them after the beheading of Aston Green, the shooting of Carlton Carey, and the gruesome slashing of Mildred Banks. Others just don't want to talk at all to law enforcement. Many leave the temple and get far away from Miami. They abandon their Yahweh surnames of Israel and go back to their slave names, making it difficult for investigators to track them down. Now, it's 11 years after the founding of the Temple of Love, and 14 homicides later, former Eyewitness News 10 reporter Rad Berkey says he gets a tip. It is November 7, 1990, and things are about to go down at the Temple of Love. My name is Rad Berkey. I was a reporter at WPLG Channel 10, and I hadn't been there all that long, but I got a good tip, a good tip, and I'm not going to tell you from where, that I ought to be at a certain location. And I knew as soon as I heard the location, that was known as the Temple of Love. It was the Yahweh's headquarters. It was an old warehouse, I believe. And that morning, we were there. It was very early. It was before dawn, before sunup. And we just sat in the car and waited. We were told not to go wandering around or anything like that. So we just sat in the car and waited. And all of a sudden, it just, it just happened. In the pre-dawn darkness, SWAT teams moved in before any of the Yahwehs were even awake. Police ringed the massive Temple of Love in Liberty City as another SWAT team went through the front door. The Yahweh's leader, who claims to be the son of God, Yahweh Ben Yahweh, was arrested in New Orleans, giving up without a struggle. In all, 13 group members and former members were charged. Yahweh members who all use the last name Israel describe what happened. Our people were lying down on the floor like a bunch of criminals with shotguns up against their faces and heads. The charges against the group date from the early 1980s and involve more than a dozen murders and firebombings of a number of homes in Delray Beach. Among the killings were two tenants of this Opalaka apartment complex who were shot to death in 1986 after publicly criticizing the Yahwehs who were trying to evict them from the building. Yahweh Ben Yahweh's attorney Ellis Rubin calls today's arrests persecution. And so the FBI swooped in 
uh, in the middle of the night like they were common criminals. Once they were praised as good business leaders, but tonight the Yahwehs are branded by prosecutors as terrorists who use murder to get their way. In Miami, Red Berkey, Channel 10, Eyewitness News. Next on the Florida Files, prosecutor Richard Scruggs, who hasn't talked publicly about the Yahweh case in three decades, tells me all about inside federal court and the indictment of Yahweh Ben Yahweh. Plus, what Yahweh Ben Yahweh's daughter, Vanita Mitchell, says she saw flying over the Temple of Love. Join me, Michelle Solomon, as Coulter Conspiracy continues on the Florida Files. Get more of the story and online extras, including archive video and photos at Local10.com. Are you a fan of the Florida Files? Tell us what you love about the series on Apple Podcasts and join other fans in leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.